Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Technology Report, sponsored by GM Defense. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Dr. Kaoki Jackson, the Senior Vice President and General Manager of the National Security Sector at MITRE. Before joining the federally funded Research and Development Center, Dr. Jackson spent two decades at Lockheed Martin, culminating his tenure as the Chief Technology Officer at the world's leading defense and aerospace firm. Dr. Jackson, welcome to the program. Great to have you on. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks uh, very much again. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Our weekly cyber report and cyber coverage overall is sponsored by Northrop Grumman. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And GM Defense, of course, sponsors our technology coverage. Uh, Dr. Jackson, as I said, great, um, great to have you on. Uh, just got back from South by Southwest and had a chance to catch up with folks across uh, the technology ecosystem, from folks in the civilian world to Silicon Valley folks to uh, the good folks who are trying um, to innovate the, the defense space to those involved with funding innovation and adapting it for military use. And the operative point everybody was making was I think something that we've known for a long time that civilian technology is moving faster than whatever is coming purely out of the defense uh, ecosystem. And indeed, I mean, one of the keys is harnessing that commercial innovation as quickly as possible. Folks like Frank Kendall and others have been calling for greater speed for some time. Uh, you know, the Pentagon didn't invent the, the airplane and the automobile, but it advanced both. Um, and we're sort of going back to where the natural ecosystem was before World War II, where it was more about adapting existing technology and then becoming a technology generator of its own, as Lockheed Martin did throughout the Cold War repeatedly, right? I mean, the, the internet was a military innovation that we're all benefiting from. What are the commercial innovations and the commercial technologies and the commercial sectors that you think are going to have the greatest impact uh, in national security? You know, that's a pretty broad space uh, when you talk about all of national security. And maybe I'll just take a step back um, and talk about the mission context. And uh, of course, uh, I, we all have seen what's going on uh, kind of brutally unfolding uh, across our TV screens and devices over the past few weeks uh, in Ukraine. Uh, but there's still, uh, of course, this very big strategic competition, global competition, uh, uh, particularly with China as the, uh, as the pacing threat. And uh, that unfolds in a variety of dimensions, um, everything from military, of course, uh, and intelligence uh, elements of national security, but broadly speaking, uh, economic, uh, technological and uh, diplomatic among others. So given that, you could say, all right, well, what are the most exciting areas of technology? Starting from the mission perspective and particularly from the viewpoint that we have to uh, deter aggression and, and then respond uh, you know, with, with force uh, when in, in the case where deterrence fails, uh, we have to make sure that we are having the technologies to essentially close kill chains and kill webs. And so that's where I always start is what is the outcome or the effect or the impact that you're trying to uh, actually create, whether it's, a, whether it's a kill chain closure or uh, you know, creating a deterrent effect. So that said, uh, I, I think it's 
unarguable that we have seen a dramatic shift over, say, the last generation, the last three decades. Um, and it's gone by a whole variety of different uh, terms, revolution, military affairs, net centric warfare, um, you know, all domain uh, operations, join all domain operations. Uh, but ultimately, the upshot is that the platforms, the effectors, the sensors are uh, absolutely you know, critical elements of both uh, the kill chains and the, uh, and the deterrent effects. But more and more, it is an information-centric world. And so it is the ability, of course, to sense, uh, to communicate, and uh, to create uh, effects at the edge. But equally important, it's the ability to command and control, to create courses of action, to weigh those courses of action, and ultimately to make the right uh, uh, decisions um, on those courses and then the employment thereafter. So if it really is an information-driven world and a software-driven world, uh, then you could argue the technologies that are advancing uh, those elements, uh, advanced communications, uh, certainly autonomy, artificial intelligence, um, you know, potentially quantum information sciences that covers everything from sensing to communications to, uh, to computing. Uh, so those are just a, a handful of examples. Um, and then the, the stitching of all of that together in, uh, in a world that encompasses mobility, encompasses uh, blended reality. Uh, so everything from virtual to augmented reality and, uh, and the technologies that bring the human uh, to the machine. So those human machine teaming pieces, pause there. Um, well, let me, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, a great lead into the next question, which is, um, do we have the right approach, right? How much of this is, is pull, pulling ideas uh, from commercial? How much of this is better explaining the big problems we need to solve and letting industry sort of, sort of get at it, right? Because, I mean, one of the challenges we've seen is, you know, we, we say we don't want to be too directive. We want to sort of see like, well, you know, let those thousand flowers bloom. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we both know Frank Kendall really well, you know, uh, Secretary Kendall's uh, take in this more is we sort of know what the big problems are. Let's apply our shoulder and get 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 the wheel moving more quickly in that direction. What's the the right push pull here in this ecosystem um, to, to get us what we need as quickly as we need it in the in the scale that we need it? Yeah, a couple of things. Maybe I'll use autonomy and artificial intelligence as a as a sailing example. Uh, you know, a lot of times, I think there's a strong recognition that these are really game-changing technologies, that you, if you can essentially be a force multiplier for an individual human uh, in terms of, you know, rapidly analyzing data, creating actionable intelligence, um, turning that into courses of action, ultimately, uh, executing those, um, that's a huge game changer. If you can change the pace and the speed on the battlefield, and uh, you know, we talk about uh, machine speed being in the nanosecond realm, but 
uh, but humans kind of work on the second realm and the second to a nanosecond is like, uh, you know, um, essentially uh, 32 years to that second on the battlefield. So you can get a feeling of how dramatic that timing uh, importance is. So absolutely, we recognize that these kinds of technologies are, are game changers for national security. But, you know, oversimplifying here, you get this sense that people say, you know, I've got a whole bunch, of, I've got this bag of artificial intelligence, uh, what can I uh, paint it on? And uh, instead, you know, what we're finding more and more is that you have to start from the specific mission applications, uh, the, the kill chains or kill, kill webs, and work backwards to say, what are those really critical technologies? Where will uh, additional decision advantage make a difference? Where will the ability to process a much broader uh, range of multivariate uh, or multi the uh, multi-source intelligence information uh, make a difference. And so uh, if, I, I believe that's where you're going in terms of saying, all right, let's, let's start from those big problems and then apply the technologies that make the most sense. Now, the thing that really strikes me as you look at the commercial world is that this is not a case of, okay, we got a problem. Let's spend some time defining a, uh, a really detailed requirements list, uh, put this into a, a full up acquisition and uh, we'll go through an entire acquisition lifecycle operational test and evaluation. Um, and X years out, uh, we'll have the answer. I mean, commercial timescales as we know are months, uh, sometimes shorter. And uh, so that multi-year timescale just doesn't work when we're talking about adversaries who are embracing the ability to change and upgrade their capabilities on these sorts of commercial software timescales. How do we do, you know, as, as a student of military programs, we demonstrated, for example, in World War II that we could move with incredible speed, P-51 Mustang, was the product of roughly six months from requirement to going into production, right? Um, extraordinary period of time. And you could argue that that airplane was as sophisticated as an airplane can get with a laminar flow wing, um, supercharger that added speed. I mean, there were all sorts of features to that airplane that were uh, tremendous um, for its time. Uh, and we developed it and built it quickly. We now have computational fluid dynamics. We have um, the CAD uh, uh, systems uh, where we can do digital design, uh, pop that into digital manufacture, right? I mean, we have all the tools in order to be able to do this, right? As CTO, your job not just was uh, looking at technology in general, but how to harness technology for Lockheed Martin's uh, advantage. And the company prides itself on holding an advantage uh, because of your <laughs> good, good work uh, that you were doing there. How don't we have all the tools at our disposal to actually allow us to do even bigger things faster than we're doing them, right? I mean, what's the key to speed in this equation from your standpoint? Yeah, well, as you note, uh, mother, our necessity is often the mother of invention. And so uh, having uh, that driving need and that sense of urgency, I think, is uh, absolutely critical. Now, that's, we have certainly felt that uh, uh, across the department for several years now, and it has, you know, uh, particularly been driven by the, the recognition of the great power competition. 
so translating that sense of urgency into a responsive system. And, you know, I, I think just a high level note that, uh, you know, this is an incredible, incredible time uh, or opportunity uh, with the uh, PPBE Reform Commission. Uh, so I think there is a, a generational chance, if you will, to, um, to really take a look at some of the way the Pentagon does programming, budgeting, uh, and execution. Uh, the second uh, gets to the way appropriations happen. And of course, those two processes kind of go hand in hand. So there's, a, there's an element of making sure that the bucks are there to accomplish the bucks ro Buck Rogers uh, at the time, speed, at time and speed that are needed. The next thing that I'd really highlight is increasing the pace of um, experimentation. And I think one of the most exciting things that we're seeing today is the campaigns of experimentation at the DOD level and then certainly at the service level. Uh, you know, one of the big things that that highlights is what are the gaps and seams as you actually try to bring these new technologies um, into action in an operationally relevant environment. And of course, that, that piece is critically important for the kinds of things that we're talking about. So uh, what now I think the big challenge that uh, everybody is facing is we have a lot of learning out of these experiments. Uh, a lot of new technologies have been brought to bear. Um, you know, it is using uh, things like AI systems, bringing 5G into the fight, uh, starting to experiment with uh, new sensors, uh, um, new concepts of operation. Uh, how do you translate that into uh, true and sustained combat capability. And these are the pieces where, as we look at you know, some of the, the changes that need to happen, uh, we really need to um, focus on a couple of things in the, uh, in the acquisition process. Um, the first is you know, making sure that we are truly aligned with the, the, the defense strategy and the approaches that we're trying to take. But then I'd say flexibility and agility. Um, you know, these, these are things that are very much prized by people who have to go out and execute programs, particularly in a dynamic environment. But uh, you know, our, pro our, our process is essentially quite rigid today where we do everything we can to fix the, uh, the baseline in terms of technical uh, cost schedule and uh, uh, so on, and then minimize the risks in execution. And ultimately, uh, you get a, a typically a very good product at the end. Uh, you're just not sure where you're going to get it and when, and whether it's going to be the right product at the time it comes out the end of the pipe there. So turning that upside down and transitioning to a place where we can, you know, coming out of these experiments, uh, set rapid acquisition approaches, have the flexibility to deploy uh, dollars uh, in the year of execution rather than having you know, three-year time lags uh, from the time a uh, critical need hits to the time that it uh, can actually get uh, a degree of uh, actionable funding. And, uh, and then really turning to uh, approaches, and I, I think you highlighted one of the critical ones, the digital engineering elements, um, and I'm going to use digital engineering broadly to encompass the entire life cycle from uh, you know, requirements and architectures through design, uh, development, um, uh, and ultimately production, integration and tests, operations, sustainment, and eventually retirement. Um, when you have that 
fully implemented, uh, now you have the ability to rapidly model and simulate uh, you know, different characteristics uh, in a design. And equally important, as you start integrating across programs and across systems and systems of systems, now being able to tell uh, what the interfaces, the interactions, and the uh, ultimate battlefield or warfighting gains will be. Uh, so you can, you can make trades much more quickly in terms of a design cycle. And then uh, ultimately, and we have a ways to go, but, uh, but this will revolutionize the way we do uh, integration and testing, uh, including operational testing, as you start to have a much deeper integration of, uh, of both development and operational testing, but then virtual and, um, and, and physical testing. So the, 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 it's, it's that combination of the integrated digital environment uh, one of the problems today is that you have a lot of stuff that uh, is, I'd say, partially in. How do we get from where we are today and take that leap to, uh, to all in and, uh, and make the appropriate trades there? Uh, making sure that we have the, because these are software reliant or software intensive systems, you have to have the tools that, uh, that bridge both the software and the hardware elements. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, you have to make sure that these tools are uh, are being used um, to the fullest potential by the teams. You have the, the education, the training, the uh, workforce development, and the operational integration into uh, the, the company's operations or the organization's operations. So in, in this ecosystem, um, there's, there are, it's fraught with all sorts of challenges, right? I mean, the commercial companies are a little reticent about doing business with the government. Um, the government contractors know the system uh, and may not be interested in the invention of fire, right? I mean, they, they may be returning shareholders return uh, because of darkness. Uh, you know, um, I'm reminded a little bit of Larry David commercial about fire, uh, you know, that the fire could have been part of it. Um, you know, that, that somebody would look at it and go, well, you know, fire is really dangerous. We should do 15 years of AOAs analyses of alternatives to see, you know, well, you know, is this a really good idea? Right. How does how do you get this entire ecosystem moving more quickly at a time when everybody knows, you know, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about the programmatic speed part of it. What what do we have to do in terms of, you know, sort of better harnessing this entire ecosystem and incentivizing everybody toward toward innovation and more rapid change as opposed to a default setting, which would would be sort of everybody does what they do the way they do it, which might not necessarily be the right answer. Yeah, in a sense, it requires resetting some of the the definitions of success, right? And so now you're talking about mission outcomes and mission performance, and uh, you know. I would, I would be very hard pressed to point to anybody. You have a lot of people across the entire defense industrial base who are heavily invested in the success of the missions here. And so I, I frankly, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion about who has the better solution uh, uh, to solve a problem. And industry is extremely good at solving problems. Uh, I think that the, 
the work really needs to be done on defining those problems appropriately. And in getting at some of these technology elements, uh, you know, you need to think about ways where you can separate some of the, uh, I'd say, more traditional platform building kinds of uh, work uh, and weapon system building work with the more, uh, the, the pieces that need to operate in a much faster time cycle. And so those are the same information driven systems and software driven uh, elements that I talked about before. So freeing up pieces of these to operate on different time cycles is going to be important. And that uh, I think plays very well with the idea that a lot more of these systems are effectively going to be software designed and defined and somewhat independent of the underlying hardware that they ride on. Uh, the next thing is uh, early collaboration. And so this is the case where uh, you really have to work. I think government and the ecosystem that supports the government uh, needs to really understand what the drivers are for industry. And uh, when I say industry, I'm saying writ large. Uh, so companies that focus purely on commercial customers today, companies that straddle, as you said, the purely commercial or uh, uh, and the government markets and others that are largely focused on, uh, on government and military markets. So that implies this is not gonna be a one size fits all. I think we are relatively early in applying a lot of the authorities that are out there, uh, including some of the new acquisition pathways. And so this is a place now you have a, a fairly dynamic array uh, teaching that government workforce and the folks who support them to really take advantage of those new approaches that includes everything from rapid prototyping and fielding uh, to software uh, development acquisition pathway uh, that harnesses uh, today's current practices, but should be free to harness the new development practices and processes of tomorrow. Uh, I'd already talked about flexibility. And so building flexibility into uh, the early execution and ongoing execution elements. And then of course, you, you can't talk about flexibility and certainly uh, not in, uh, in front of the Congress without talking about accountability. And so this ties back to, are we achieving the, um, the war fighting outcomes uh, that are truly required and recognizing that schedule uh, be because of the rapid turnover in technology that, that meeting timelines is a war fighting outcome, just like delivering a specific capability. Um, I want to shift to uh, hypersonics in a couple of minutes uh, that we've got left because uh, uh, your organization is leading uh, a leap ahead study in hypersonics for the Joint Hypersonics Transition Office. What's the goal uh, of the study? Uh, I'm not going to get into uh, uh, specific details of, of activities. Uh, I'd, I'd say writ large, MITRE's interest um, is in supporting the Department of Defense and the services across the range of uh, existing programs uh, to the future application of new technologies that could have um, leap ahead kinds of implications. And, uh, and moreover, MITRE's interest, of course, spans the, the range uh, from 
you know, off offensive hypersonic technologies and, uh, and applications to defensive applications as well. Now, MITRE is not, I mean, we're not a hypersonic air vehicle builder. Uh, that's not the space that we, we play in, uh, but MITRE's uh, core expertise and the areas that we're focused in uh, overall are the places where you know, understanding the weapons employment benefits of hypersonic systems. How do hypersonics play in a kill chain or a kill web? What is the end-to-end -end employment conops uh, from uh, sensing you know, the whole uh, find, fix, target track, uh, uh, and then engage and assess uh, profile? And understanding not just you know what is the uh, the hypersonic thing that flies fast, but how do you accomplish a specific, a specific war fighting outcome there? So what are the kinds of targets that are most important? Uh, what does it take to actually uh, find and track those targets? Are there other elements that you need? Communication sensing, for example. Um, what is the command and control uh, and how are those changes going to manifest themselves uh, when you have a, a time of flight that is much shorter than uh, perhaps certain kinds of existing weapon systems? So those are all the key questions that take a hypersonic weapon to employable in the sense of a hypersonic weapon system that's uh, operationally well relevant and operationally employable. Um, how do does the I mean, the United States has always been a leader uh, in the technology. We took our um, eye off of the ball. China and Russia have fielded weapons. North Korea is developing them. Um, how would you characterize where the United States stands vis-a-vis -vis its competitors in the technology at this point? Even and, and bearing in mind, right, General Thurgood and the entire uh, team uh, at uh, DOD, mutual friend, uh, Dr. Mark Lewis, uh, was instrumental uh, during his tenure at the Pentagon in trying to accelerate all of these uh, efforts. But would, where where do we stand now vis-a-vis -vis our great power competitors? Well, I'm not going to say anything that you haven't heard uh, uh, many places before. I think it's fair to say that uh, that the United States would like to be a lot further ahead in terms of uh, the delivery and deployment of certain kinds of systems. Uh, I think and this is really important. Hypersonics is less a technology than a domain of flight. And, the, and as you know, the United States has led in the technologies that support hypersonic flight uh, and hypersonic vehicles for many, many years. And so for me, the, you know, there, there are a couple of questions. You know, what is the next great thing that we need to be focused on, um, whether it's uh, specific mission applications or the, uh, the technologies that will enable uh, operating different regimes? But all, you know, the other piece is, what does it take to bring those technologies together rapidly and uh, be in a continuous design, build, test cycle uh, that allows us to continuously evolve our systems uh, and modernize our, modernize our systems. And so one thing that I'll highlight there is the, the test infrastructure um, and the range infrastructure. And these are areas where you know, the real objective is to be able to significantly increase throughput across the enterprise here. 
uh, we've got a lot of programs uh, going. Uh, I anticipate that uh, there's going to be a lot of interest in continuing development in the future. Um, but uh, ultimately, we need to break down these barriers in terms of being able to test uh, much more rapidly and to be able to get uh, get systems out to the range and uh, and demonstrated in their operational or, or uh, near operational environments. Uh, let me ask uh, one uh, last question. Uh, when you look at the Russia-Ukraine war, um, you know, everybody is focused a little bit on sort of what's not happening, right? An expectation the Russians would have been doing better than they're doing now. From your perspective, what are some of the things you're seeing? What are some of the lessons you're spotting as you as you watch this and are privy to the kinds of information you're privy to? Well, I, I'm watching the news and, uh, and reading the updates uh, uh, in real time, much, uh, not in the last, not in the last few minutes here, but uh, near real time, just like uh, everybody else. Uh, so a, a few things that I'll note. Um, one is, uh, you know, writ large, uh, I think many of us are rethinking uh, what um, our understanding of deterrence means and uh, what has changed since uh, the days uh, of the Cold War and, uh, and the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, I think uh, we need a new model of deterrence and that has to encompass, of course, uh, we have multiple actors beyond uh, two, uh, two poles of the US and the Soviet Union, but we also have a lot more dimensions of that whole range from non-kinetic uh, to kinetic to uh, strategic and nuclear kinds of effects as well. Uh, the second is the element of information. And uh, it's very striking uh, the, you know, what we're seeing in terms of how both the Russians and the Ukrainians are employing information uh, to try to use it to their advantage in very different ways. And uh, you could argue that, uh, that uh, the Ukrainian president has done an incredible job of rallying uh, the world uh, uh, in defense of him, uh, Ukrainian democracy and against uh, Russian aggression. Uh, you'd also note that uh, the Russians have uh, very uh, tried very hard to manage um, the information environment, both externally and internally, uh, with, uh, frankly, very mixed results. Uh, the third thing that I'd highlight is that, uh, let me just say that uh, we are reminded, uh, as in any conflict, that uh, no plan uh, meets for or survives first contact. And uh, in this case, I think that uh, the plan did not go quite or at all as envisioned. Um, and this is starting to highlight, I think many of the challenges uh, that all militaries need to think about. And it is everything uh, about logistics and supply chains. It's about uh, contested environments and operation in those environments. Uh, it is about uh, asymmetric uh, kinds of advantages uh, and different kinds of um, uh, weapons. It's about, uh, and of course, it's about the people. And what you see is incredible uh, uh, strength, determinism, or determination, um, 
uh, on the side of the Ukrainians to resist this aggression here. And that human element uh, is something that you can never take out of uh, the war fighting equation. Sir, thanks very much for spending so much time with us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again in the future. Thanks very much. All right. Well, thank you, Vago.